This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Sandy Hunt, and I'm here with... Hey, I'm Nick Ashburn. And we are thrilled to be joining you listeners for another wonderful day talking about the intersection of business and social impact. We are here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, but we are also replayed throughout the week. You can catch us on the SiriusXM app. And we're delighted to be talking a little bit about the latest trends and social impact in the news. Oh, is there social impact in the news? There's always social I know, there's always in the social impact in the news. In fact, I was listening to a quite mainstream podcast over the weekend and sort of, you know, it was multitasking, I was cleaning or something. And I, I sort of did a double Were take. Were you conmaroing? I was, I was, yes, I was not, not officially conmaroing, but we can say inspired by. And I, I had to go back, you know, hit the 30-second rewind button, and it was an ad for an impact investing platform. Oh, nice. And it was very mainstream. It was describing impact investing, you know, for for sort of someone not in the space and not a sophisticated investor. This was just for, you know, hey, if you have a checking account, you can also be thinking about, you know, investing to make the world a better place. And I thought, wow, how far things have come from five years ago when we started you know, this Sirius XM show. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We had to describe it to even folks in the industry. Yeah. Um, and so it was really just a, a fascinating point in time. And I wrote down the names. So I'll have to have them on in a future oh, yeah. episode. That'd be great. So I was walking to work this morning um, and I was reminded of something uh, my husband said last night. And hi, it, Michael. Hey, Michael. And I was thinking about. Um, he he was talking. He used to work. He used to work for NPR, and so they had done some research where, like, what is it about? You know, what makes certain shows successful or not? And it was about more the the personality, Uh-oh. the personalities <laughs> of of the hosts. And so, and, and because sometimes you know NPR is news. Mm-hmm. Some I mean sometimes it's music, but more in the in the talk radio space, you know, it's news. It's um, storytelling Mm -hmm. and so it was sort of like what what do people want what do they like and it was almost like it didn't matter as long as they sort of trusted the personalities and it made me go oh my Uh god listeners i hope that you trust (laughs) sandy's and my personalities but then it made me go in a more shallow place where i was like I can't. You don't. You still don't have your twiddle, twiddle, Twitter handle no, anymore. I have neither right? a twiddle nor a Twitter. <laughs> but it used to be Coffee with Sandy. It was. And I was for thinking the thirty-six hour stint. It was <laughs> right. You were you were on Twitter for a very limited amount of time. I was peer pressured at the Forbes thirty under thirty summit, or forty whatever it was. Yeah. And then thirty under thirty didn't last. Yeah. And then um, I was just thinking because we're always very desperate for coffee in the morning. It was mm-hmm. like, what if it was Coffee with Nick and Sandy? There we go. <laughs> Rebranded. That shouldn't be any work for our producer, right, Matt? Exactly. The whole show is just now coffee with Nick and Sandy. Uh, but hopefully, but we do that... have that level of fun. Exactly, and I, I hope that that means our listeners, because our show, you know, we may be introducing topics that people don't always know mm-hmm. about. You know, different geographies, different types of guests. I mean, we're such a potpourri hodgepodge oh, yeah. sort of thing with the idea of how our, how our business strategies used for social and environmental impact. That hopefully you're learning something because you trust us. Well, I, I will say there are podcasts that I'm very loyal to that I listen to often or shows that I have grown to really like the uh, narrator or host of. Yep. And a segment will come on and I'll go, oh, you know, I'm really not interested in this. But 
I'm always interested in what this person has to say, and I'm sort of emotionally invested, or this is now a part of my routine that on Wednesdays I listen to this on my commute. So, so. on Wednesdays you wear pink and you listen to that <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but um, but we hope that that can be this for the listeners. You know, every segment's different. We talk to entrepreneurs, impact investors, uh, multinational corporations, you know, and everything in and around the impact ecosystem. Some of it might be for you, might be a home run because it's just what you do. Um, and some of it might be be new, and we hope right. that you you know stay tuned and listen to that because we think that there's a lot to learn from all of our our guests. We certainly learn a lot from all of them. Exactly. So without further ado, let's uh, check in on on who our guests are going to be today. We're delighted our first guest is here in studio, back at his alma mater and current academic institution. Shadrach Frimpong is the founder and CEO of Coco Three Sixty. It's tough to summarize his bio uh, because he's done so much in the short time since his graduation from UPenn in 2015. But this is going to be a story of entrepreneurship um, and what that looks like in the sort of early years of a successful uh, venture and evolving venture. Let's jump into it. Shadrach. Welcome back to your alma mater. Thank you. We are delighted to have you. Um, Did I I read this incorrectly? Speaking of Forbes 30 under 30, you are a Forbes 30 under 30. Right. Yeah. Among many other things. We would we would waste the entire segment if I read all of the distinctions oh my gosh, this young yeah. man has has acquired. Forbes study under 30, the Queen's Young Leader Award at Buckingham Palace. You know, uh, Bill Clinton named him to the um, Clinton Global uh, Initiative University's high honor roll. The list goes on and on. So we're thrilled to have you here. Um, let's give our listeners a quick snapshot of your journey. You were here at University of Pennsylvania studying biology, graduated 2015. Something happened that spring. Tell us the story from then to now. Yeah, so in 2015, I got very fortunate um, to be in an environment like Penn, where there's so many amazing people already, and, you know, to just be handpicked for an award like, um, you know, the President's Engagement Prize. Um, and the President's Engagement Prize really was started by Dr. Gatman. Um, to help students who have bold entrepreneurial ideas mm-hmm. that also have the potential of changing the world at the same time, to go back into their communities, use the pen education, the power of the pen education to really effect social change for good. So it's a total of $150,000. You're supposed to take 100k to um, to push that idea that you have, and you know, hopefully 50k will. We'll, we'll, we'll keep you afloat. Yeah. We'll sustain you. We'll sustain you for yeah. those uh, one or two years. But yeah. really, I do have to give a shout out to Dr. Gutman specifically for that. The prize was designed not only to have $100,000 going towards the venture, but then also 50 k per student member of the team per year to cover living expenses. Because so often you see these prizes and it's right. 20 grand or 50 grand. And that's great for the venture, but you still need food, insurance, you know, safe place to sleep. Yeah, we hear a lot of entrepreneurs eating ramen, <laughs> right? Yeah. So. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you're exactly right. I mean, looking back, even though for me transferring from, uh, because my venture was back home in Ghana, um, moving from the U.S. to, you know, back home to Ghana, IRS did good job to take, you know, a good chunk of that 50K. Uh, but still, there was something left for, you know, to, to, to see me through that period uh, where we had to work, uh, get started on this. I think another thing that really changed the course of things for me was when I won the President's Engagement Prize though, with other fellow Ghanaians, uh, Maxwell Century Taylor, who, who was, was also class of 2015 um there was jacob um 
Jacob Mould, William Mould. He was also pen class of 2015. There was Julianado, pen class of 2013. And then Isaac Opoku, who is also another fellow Ghanaian, right next door at Swartmore, who was at Swartmore at the time. And we're very good friends, classmate living in Hamilton Core. Oh. Um, <laughs> and then I remember that morning when I wanted, they were like, yo, we, we have office from BCG, all these places. But, you know, we complain, we complain a lot about things back home. Yeah. Maybe this is the time for us to really take that bold step and go home. So I got, you know, extremely lucky in that end because even after winning the engagement prize was still scary for me yeah. to be able to go out there and do something like that on my own. So that support of friends who were willing to go back to Ghana with me really made a, a lot of difference. And yeah, for after that, you know, we won the award and we went back to Ghana, went to my village. The community was very kind, you know. Um, they showed their support by donating 50 acres of land towards wow. what we wanted to do. Um, and for, for, that, for us, that was huge because it showed how much committed they were to what we wanted to really do. So Shadrach, before we get super deep into mm. that part of the story, like you, you just mentioned you're from Ghana. Right. And you came to the University of Pennsylvania for your undergrad. Mm. And you got these other Ghanaians, you know, who were your classmates, maybe different years, who had these offers from, you know, the top tier consulting firms like BCG. Right to go with you on this journey. Tell our listeners a little bit more about like what it is to think about like w- how you can use your skills back home. So before we really dive into the venture right. itself, but like what is that drive? What what are you trying to solve? Yeah, so I always tell people um until this date I get, you know, people always ask me how do you know you you want to do this? How do you know you want to take your skills to really push something? And I always tell people it has to come from a place of pain and anger, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was, it was because you know I, I saw I saw the first, pretty much ten first decade of my life, I didn't know what electricity or running water was growing right. up in the village, and my parents were cocoa farmers, and then coming to Penn taking classes, I remember biology one hundred and one with Professor Scott Puk- Putik <laughs> in the biology department, and he talked about how Ghana is the world's second leading exporter of cocoa rakes in about $2 billion mm-hmm. in export revenue every year. And I sat there and I said, wait, so why my why's my family so poor? Why did we grow up in yeah, so much yeah, poverty? Yeah, where's that $2 billion? So that kind of anger really always stayed with me. And it turned out that I wasn't the only person feeling that anger. These friends, Ghanaian friends of mine, also felt the same issue. They were, even though we came from different you know, economic backgrounds in terms of in-country, they also felt that it was an injustice. Mm-hmm. So that injustice pushed us. We felt that, you know, at Penn, we've had internships, both locally, myself, I had internships to, to do research in Switzerland. as a kind of really detail-oriented guy. Let's, let's back this with evidence. And then my friends, over the course of their career, you know, had interned at BCG, Goodman Sachs. So we felt we have all these skills, yet every day we're complaining about things going back home in Ghana. Maybe this is the opportunity for us to really, like, you know, you mentioned earlier, Sandy, to really walk the talk. And... For us, that change, that, that's what really pushed us to, to be angry about what we were seeing back home. And for them, they had a prime example of what was possible if yeah. the kids of these cocoa farmers and their families had opportunities. They could see that in me, right? Yeah. And so the anger pushed us to use the experience and the skills we, we, have, gained, we have gained at Penn um, to really go back home and push for change. Yeah. And did you see... Um Anything so as you were at Penn, one of the things that um, from our work working you know on the continent in sub-Saharan Africa, 
you know, there's this concept of the brain drain. Mm. You know, people do leave, they get educated mostly in Europe or the U.S., and they don't return home. Was that sort of, uh, were you sort of seeing that, uh, maybe not here amongst your peers, but just sort of in your communities and, and back home? Yeah, it's it's very much a big thing. I, I, it's amazing. Um, but majority of our classmates uh, in the pan, even our pan African community, a lot of our friends decided to stay. Uh, and even for me, uh, after graduating, there are a lot of people who thought I was crazy, right? Because <laughs> I wanted to go straight to medical school, and I mean, who? In essence, when I was looking back, it was just the craziness and the you know how bad we wanted to do it. But sometimes I look back at my myself, my younger self back then. I'm still young, <laughs> but then I look back at myself three years ago. I'm like, you must be crazy. Who who grows up in that much poverty, gets a chance to come to America, and really goes back to the same poverty? Because when we went back, when I went back to my village, there was still if you want to make call in, a phone call in my village, you have to climb the highest mountain to make a call. Right? That's how bad it is. There's no cell tower. So. Really, these challenging conditions. Um, but again, it was all because the, the you know that's fundamentally what kind of pushes that brain drain, right? Yeah. A lot of people, when you come from these difficult challenges or these, even if you are coming from a good socioeconomic background, as far as your own or um, country of origin is concerned, America is notches and steps that uh, steps higher. But I think one of the amazing things I saw in my friends that I went back home was. Even though they had these offers, and initially when we are going, you know, there was the talk of, oh, we may come back home. I kid you not. They're all back home in Ghana. They've started, so these most of these guys were, some of them were Wharton uh, grads. They've started their own ventures for, for profit entities, um, while still serving on the organization's advisory board. But now they're they are running their own for-profit ventures in-country. They're doing so well. And, I mean, they're employing a lot of people, and... It's always funny. Now we always talk about how we come. They come to the U.S. just for vacations. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's great. Well, I I, yeah. I certainly think the world would be a better place if everyone uh, took their anger and frustration and did as productive and helpful things for the world as you allowed it to do for this work. So when you applied for the President's Engagement Prize, you had a particular business model and a, right. a venture in mind. Three years later, it looks a lot different. Tell us what your initial venture was and then how it has evolved because this is you know a universal component of entrepreneurship as we right. see it you know things are very rarely the same in execution as they are on paper but it's not an easy journey so so tell that story a little bit to our listeners yeah so when we started um you know for me i the goal was to go spend one year in Ghana and come back to the U.S. and go to medical school. I had all that planned out. Very, I'm a very detail-oriented person. Um, so that was my plan going in. When we applied for the President's Engagement Prize, it was to build a tuition-free girls' school in a community clinic um, that will be supported, supported, uh, keywords, just supported, um, with proceeds from a community farm. Okay, we, we, so it would be like a plot of land, had had the school for girls, had a yeah. health clinic for those girls, and then a farm that was a generating too, some yeah. revenue. Okay, Exactly. So that was the crux of it, and it was just one community. So even applying for the engagement prize till date, if you look up videos and things that we had from those days, mm-hmm. I tell people, you type in www.takwaberman.com, and lead, it leads you literally directly to coco360.org. Um, but we started because of that, and the idea... And the model of just be, it being just one community, 
we started in my village. We named it Takwa Berman Community Alliance. And, you and know, what, does that, what does that mean? Is that the name of the town? So okay. my village is called uh, Takwa Berman. Okay. Then you have the Community Alliance. Excellent. So okay. it's sort of like, you know, a community coming together to do something. Um, really just a very simple idea. We have money. We're going to work with the community, set something up. Then, <laughs> over the years, we keep doing this and, you know, uh, thanks to people like, you know, you, uh, you folks here, Nick and uh, Sandy, who do the amazing job of getting people like us on shows like this, uh, we, we I had opportunity to talk about the work that we're doing and the model. And I remember a year after, got uh, got an email from uh, the Clinton Foundation. Chelsea Clinton says, hey, I would love to hear about your work. Coming to our office in New York, we meet. I talked about the model. She looks at me. She's like, listen, I've been, we've been working with this foundation for a while. This idea is really game changing. and You have Aww. no idea. Um, so I got the opportunity to meet a couple of other folks. I um, Kennedy Odede of the Shining Hope for Communities uh, in Kibera, based in the, uh, uh, Kenya. Raj Panjabi of Last My Health met really a lot of incredible people. And more and more, what we were finding was that we were onto something bigger and something different, something that wasn't just confined to my community, Takwa Berman, alone. And something whose main theme was beyond the community alliance, was, be, was up to the point that there was a moral mandate, a moral obligation for cocoa communities, cocoa growing communities, which are cash crop, which earn the Ghanaian economy about $2 billion in export revenue every year, not to be poor. So that really changed the conversation. We changed our name from Takwa Community Alliance to Cocoa 360 because obviously we can't go into another community and call it Takwa Community Alliance. Sure. Um, so now we have a bunch of community alliances under the Cocoa 360 umbrella. So we pivoted, we came back to the U.S., registered Cocoa 360 as a 501c3. In Ghana, we have every single community we go in we have a community alliance. When we started, we were only working with my village, Takwa Berman. Now we serve a total of eight communities. Um, so, yeah, that's how things have evolved over time. And yeah. how about the model? Is it still, you know, in each of those eight communities, it's a school and a farm and a health clinic? Yeah. The model has pivoted um, and to, to go towards much more, I would say, specificity. There's a lot. Absolute clarity. That's why when I, I started, I mentioned that initially the idea was just to support. But as we went forward, we realized that there were actually very specific things that we could attack. So it went from just the idea of a farm, which we didn't even know what it would be, to specifically being a cocoa farm. Okay. So now parents, for instance, parents at our school, you get tuition-free education. That's, that's a given. But for a very long time, what we noticed in Ghana is that the Ghanaian educational system provides um, tuition-free education in the sense that they pay teacher salaries. So teachers are taken care of. But then there were other factors like books, uniforms, transportation. All these things were not being taken care of. So you had a rural attendance rate of most schools to be around like 60%. And for us, we said, why is the government providing free tuition yet still? Uh, attendance rate at 60%. So that's where the, the farm for what we call the farm for impact model. We said, okay, parents, we're going to work with foreign donors. They're going to help us to cover your tuition, you are going to contribute by helping to offset these non-salaried expenses like books and uniforms. Mm -hmm. And those are going to come from the revenue from the farm. And when we did that, right, parental engagement improved, student attendance improved, 
so compared to the national rural attendance rate of 60%, at our schools, our girls' school, the attendance rate is as high as 98%. Wow. So that that's where we got more specific, dived into the data. But the amazing thing is that we stay true to our core, right? The very simple idea that we apply for the engagement prize, the farm, the school, the clinic. Those are the things that we feel like we know how to do well, and we just want to stick to that, yeah. For our listeners being inspired by this story, you are listening to Shadrach Frimpong, who is joining us here on Dollars and Change Business Radio on Sirius XM 132, talking about these early and exciting days of entrepreneurship after his graduation from Penn. Um, and so I'm curious to know about the farm a little bit. So is it some of the parents working on the farms, you know, from obviously from the villages um, and that's also helping offset those costs? What Who's working on the farm? Yeah, the parents do work on the farm. Um, the idea is to apply the proceeds from the farm towards um, improvements in both education and healthcare. Mm-hmm. So, for us on the larger team, what we're trying to accomplish is to, you know, reduce health di- disparities from the angle of social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. So, we see education, lack of access to education as a social determinant of health. We see lack of access to healthcare as a social determinant of health. So, our educational access and healthcare access themes are really stemming from a standpoint of our singular theory of change, which is that can we leverage community resources to improve social determinants of health? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you come to the education side, it's what we've seen typically in international development is that someone goes to Africa, builds a school, and when they build the school, it's 100% funded by foreign donations all the way all the way down right from tuition to books to uniforms to everything and sometimes you even have like some u.s uh, donors even sending books to africa which are not going to even suit the context anyway right right? we said no these communities are not poor that's the number one number two if we want to provide quality education we have to make sure the parents are as heavily invested as anyone and so, and, and what drove that realization? Because I certainly agree, but yeah. was it data? Was it experience? Like we see, we've probably talked to what twenty different educational, you know, ventures on the show over the over the years. You know, you're really putting a lot of stock in this parental engagement. What what um, made that so important to you? Yeah, I think the first thing you know, the, the thing that drove it was obviously my own experience growing up I in the village. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah, um, <laughs> and because I, I saw from the ground up the school, the village school that I attended, it was built by with mud, and I saw it when they were building it. My parents, my mom, would be carrying you know sand. My dad would be walking to the village river to fetch water mm-hmm. to bring it, and it was like a communal effort. Wow, talk, so, talk about like. Truly being invested in exactly. your child's education. To so build when the it was school. when it was eventually built, and we got a chance to stay in, my village to the nearest school was about an hour walk. Some days I want to skip. My dad said, "You dare not think of it. I put in that much effort. You are not skipping school." Yeah. yeah. So, it, I thought about the same idea, right? Could we get parents to do that on a monthly, consistent basis, weekly? So that it's not just one time you put the building up and that's it. And so that was at the first point. Um, but really, yeah, that's what drove it. Now, were there um, economic benefits to the families that allowed, because one of the things we hear a lot about is the need for children to help, you know, with um, farming, with other sort of economic drivers and the families being a reason that they miss school. Why was that attendance rate 60 nationally? And what 
do, do your schools do differently that make it 98? Yeah, so exactly. That's a that's a brilliant point you bring along. I think one of the things that we were able to do was, so the attendance rate was 60 because, first of all, uh, parents and most of most family heads who are like typically male, males, um, they don't, number one, in, in their head, right, what is that kind of cost benefit? If I let my child, and in most cases like the daughter, to go... Um, to go to school instead of helping me on the farm, right? You know, if she will eventually get married, then I miss out anyway. So while she's young, she might as well help me on the farm. Sure. So that was a very significant factor. We we tend to see that played a role in the 60% that we, we're seeing across nationally. But the, the, the other factor is that even when a parent, for a parent, they really want their child to go to school. Well, you've covered the teacher's salary. I still have to pay for books. I still have to pay for uniforms. If my daughter lives across the village river, every morning I have to put her on the canoe and canoe her across the river when she gets to school, walk another an, one hour through the forest to get to school. Her safety is also a problem for me. Sure. I might as well keep her home or let her yeah. stay home or let them stay home. So we, 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 we saw this and we're like, wait, these are real barriers. And and that's what we sought to yeah, I mean, address. I mean, you have to make the decision of should my daughter get an education? Yeah. At at her the risk of her safety travel. Yeah. I mean, that's a it's not a decision any parent should have to make. Yeah. So what was the solution? So for us, the solution was you know we we found that the typical approaches that people have been taking to solve this situation was really you know someone sits in America, come up with an idea that they think is great, it would be great for the community. Oh, you know, we're going to give you. More micro loans. Oh, you know, we're just going to give you, you and your family, some bicycles, hand, or, some bicycles, yeah. and we we we're going to decide design these bamboo bicycles for you. You sit on, and it, it they will last forever. We're going to design these new cushy, beautiful uh, tampons for you, and you do your daughter can use them in school. Well, we said we're going to take something that they already love and know best to do. And something that they do on a daily basis, and this is farm. So they, when I told my, my mom this morning I'm coming for this show, she's like, well, that's your job. Go handle your job. I'm going to my job. I said, what's your job? My job is the farm. So <laughs> on a daily mm-hmm. basis, that's what they do. They love to do it. They do it 24 hours. So we said, can we take the same thing and let them see the power of something that they love to do affecting their own children's education? And it's a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. So the, how does that? How does the? How do the kids get to school now? How has that changed? Is it that the hours are flexible, so the parents can accompany the kids to school, or the schools are built more central in the communities? Yeah. So exactly oh. to your last point, Great. you know, the, the <laughs> land that the, the land that the community gave to us is right there in the middle of the, the central of the community, um, and for those who have to cross the river and all of that, we we so as an organization, we raised funds and we bought a bus, right? We have a school bus. So as soon as you cross the river, the bus is waiting for you to pick you up. Yep. And we have staff members, our teachers, who go. They're so committed. They go as far as sometimes going to the other ends of the river to help the kids, uh, the students across. So we've shortened the transportation uh, hours. And we've also increased the number of hours so that while the parents are on the farm, the kids are in school. Right. As soon as they close from work, we go to drop the students. The other thing that we've been able to do is that the parents don't work on the farm alone. 
all there's there is a certain day of the week that all the parents go to work on the farm. So it's it's a communal effort, and it's beautiful for because if you've been working on your farm alone the entire week, then there's just one day of the week where you come together with everyone in the yeah. community. You're eating communal food during the farm uh, farm labor break. Everyone is talking about how their own families are doing, and it's just within three hours the entire work is done. And then during the harvest season, all of you go together to harvest crops from this communal farm. And then at the end of the harvest season, all of you get to sit down to make decisions. So recently they harvested about... Oh, interesting. So these these parent farmers are helping to make decisions about uh, evolution of the school yep. or investments? Excellent. Yep. Tell they, us some of the decisions they've made. Yeah, so like I was saying, you know, recently we harvested about $2,000 um, worth of cocoa proceeds from uh, the organization's uh, farm. And the parents just sat down and then they said, okay, we know we have needs. We know our kids need, need uniforms. We know they need books and all of that. But we're going to make decisions about how to spend this money in a tiered system. So then they vote, right? We have a village committee that represents the community um, and ensures that the voice of the community is heard as far mm-hmm. as on, on our side as an organization. So the village committee led the parents and then they voted, you know, how many of us think, you know, the first $500 should be applied towards uniform Then they vote. And they, they make all these decisions themselves. We account to them how much we earned from the farm income and it's just beautiful. They make all yeah. the decisions, and yeah. So I, I'm guessing we're we're wrap, running out of time here a little bit. But Getting I have, close to I the have end, sort yeah. of one question for you. Mm. Um, you are young. You are a, you know a relatively recent grad from the Pe- University of Pennsylvania, and you mentioned sort of some of the cultural dynamics back home. When you came in and said, "I have this great idea," right? Like on one hand, you might have been the prodigal son returning, and that's awesome. But also <laughs> being like. We're going to do things this, this, and this way, and I have resources to do it. How was that received, I mean, from the, the elders in the village and stuff like that? Yeah, it's brilliant you asked that, Nick. Um, <laughs> and I think that ties into, uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier about the village committee. So that was actually why we formed the village committee. <laughs> um, when, I, when, I, when, when I went back, you know, I thought, man, I have all the answers. So coming in with an Ivy League degree, everyone got to relax. And, and, exactly, and, right? And, 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 and it's funny because... That's what usually most of us in this space, nonprofit, uh, social enterprise space. Well, it's sort of what you're coached to do, right? For so, these pitches and exactly. things. You know? So it's, I went back and then I realized, wait, I still have my, my mother still lives in the village. My <laughs> father still lives in the village. My entire family still lives in the village. But even them, they were looking at me like, dude, you got to relax. Who's this kid? <laughs> yeah. They're like, you're coming with a new accent. We don't know you. <laughs> Oh. So you, you, you got to relax a little bit. And so my parents really helped on that front. We sat down, they said, look, we're going to hold a, go to the chiefs and request for a village deber, village gathering. So the entire village met. We all met. And the first solution that we realized came up was to form a village committee. The village committee consists of 17 people, nine women, eight men. Nice. And they essentially represent the eight key clans or tribes in the village two from each tribe. And then there is one representative who represents the chiefs, the chieftaincy council. And what they really do, these are the most respected community leaders who are not chiefs or queens or elders, right? So the individual citizens, the ordinary citizens in the community, who the community members identify and see as leaders. So they were chosen by the community members, voted on, and they meet us every week 
to tell us this is what the community is thinking. No, you're trying to do this. This will not fly in this community. And that's, that's, that's huge. A lot of organizations, what they do is they just set up a nonprofit board, members, which are probably sometimes very homogeneous in race, somewhere overseas, that makes all the decisions. We realize that we have to have, in addition to that kind of board, a local board in, within the community. Yeah. So for us, the village committee is sort of like the local board, and they bridge that gap. Yeah, and I imagine that's what allowed you to scale, right? Because yes. from community to community, if you attempted to implement the exact same thing and spend the exact same way, yeah. you know, that that's not being responsive to the, the differences. Um, we could talk to you all day, but our segment is coming to an end, so we're going to oh, yeah, have to awesome. <laughs> say farewell shortly for our listeners who and are... Is it Coco360.org? Yeah. I was just about to ask. So okay. you go to Coco360.org, social media? Yep. What They look at Coco360? Yeah, just, just go to Coco360 if you love hot chocolate, I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Tis the season. Um, excellent. Well, Shadrach, as we wrap up, one piece of advice for entrepreneurs who are listening. Well, I mean, I would say, you know, sometimes we just give, you know, the very generic advice that, you know, go and do it, do it big. But really what I, I, I would... I would advise anyone thinking of going into the kind of space that we're in. It's just humility, right? Mm -hmm. Just be humble and know that you don't have all the answers. 99 or close to 99.999% of the answers will come from the community that you're working with. And humility is the only way to know that. Yes. Yeah. A beautiful reminder to, uh, to everyone listening. I'm Sandy Hunt here with Nick Ashburn, and you are listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.